STEM Conference presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lingo Dean, sit down with retired U.S. Navy Captain and Aviator Winston Scott. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lango Dean. Finally, our esteemed guest, Captain Winston Scott. Captain Scott was selected to become an astronaut by NASA in 1992. Serving as a mission specialist, he logged over 24 days in space, including three spacewalks, totaling over 19 hours. Currently, Captain Scott serves as senior advisor to the President for External Relations, as well as being a professor of aeronautics and professor of music at Florida Institute of Technology. And without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean. Thank you so much, Brandon. And It is certainly a pleasure to welcome all of you to this special broadcast of High Tech Sunday. All of them are special in our opinion, but I got to tell you that today's conversation is one that I'm extremely excited about as we have an opportunity to spend some time with Captain Scott. So let me first just admit something to you, uh, Captain. I am fanboying over here because looking at your bio and hearing about your experiences as an astronaut, I'm going back to my boyhood days and I can't wait to dig into some of what we're going to talk about. But first, let me ask you, how are you doing? I'm doing just fine and thank you very much. Had a wonderful Christmas and uh, getting ready for a, a, a happy new year. In spite of the fact that 2020 has been kind of a weird year, You know, my family are very, very blessed that we're doing just fine. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. And um, we are all uh, grateful for the grace of God that has brought us through these unprecedented times. And when I think about that word, we've been throwing it around uh, for months and months now, unprecedented. Well, I tell you, looking at your career from the 1970s, early 70s until now, unprecedented certainly seems to be in order for you. And like I said, there's a lot on our minds that we want to jump into, but I'm going to hold back and really help us start from the beginning. And we ask this question often on the broadcast, and that really is, who are you? Who is Winston Elliott Scott? And what's your background? How did you get started on this path that has led you to this point in your life? Well, in in many ways, my background is very similar to that of many other people both minority and non-minority here in the U.S., but in other ways, it's a little bit different. I was born in Miami, Miami, Florida. is where my, my family lived and uh, actually attended segregated schools up through ninth grade. Now, I don't consider myself all that old, but schools didn't integrate until my ninth grade year, even though Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. They didn't integrate until 1964-65. So I went to segregated schools and lived in, you know, pretty much a typical black community. But I transferred over to what was the predominantly high, uh, white high school and finished 10th, 11th, and 12th there in Coral Gables, Florida. I attended Florida State University in Tallahassee. Go Knowles. All right. 
<laughs> and uh, I went to Florida State to be, to be a music major. I was a, a very fine musician. You know, we all are blessed with, with talents. Every one of us are given a number of talents. Music is a talent that I was given. I was a very, very excellent musician and uh, thought I would make my living in music. Went to school at Florida State University. But while there, my interest in technology and engineering was kindled. I mean, I began to, st to study math and science and engineering and in uh, an effort to pursue an engineering education, wound up in the Navy as a naval aviator and then 27 years on active duty and doing some things that which we'll talk about during the program. So in a way, my background's not all that different, you know, all black neighborhood, then integration, musician, but then unusual because I had the opportunity to do something that very, very few people get to do, and that's fly in space. Wow. And so that piece, that's the headline, fly in space. That certainly is not uh, something that is uh, typical in our experience, regardless of what community you're from. But when you talk about the fact that you, uh, it, growing up, were in a pretty much uh, Black community, certainly it is the case for many who grew up in that type of community, as did I, uh, that there uh, was an anchor uh, in the church. Can you speak to us at, about uh, how your spiritual side actually developed and how it may have influenced your pursuit uh, of your education and ultimately your pursuit of the passion uh, that became uh, this illustrious career? Well, certainly the spiritual side of my upbringing was very, very important in my life. Uh, my father was a deacon in the church. So the Scott kids were always, we were in Sunday school every Sunday and uh, in church uh, every Sunday also. And uh, our parents tried to instill in us uh, good values, how to, how to be good citizens and do what's right. But they also instilled in us perseverance, working hard, focus and having priorities. A priority in our home was education. Education came first, you know, for my sister, my brother and I. Uh, that was number one with my, with us, my dad and my mom. We all had to do our homework. In fact, uh, uh, my, my father's mantra, and, and now I'm, <laughs> I'm older, I guess I, I sound like him, but my father's mantra was, you got to get ahead. He would always say that. He'd say, if the teacher gives you 10 pages to read, you read 20. If the teacher gives you 10 arithmetic problems, you do 20. He was always after us to get ahead and to do more. And he demonstrated that by his involvement in church, first of all, and then his involvement in the community. And my mother was the same way. My mother played piano at Sunday school and church, sang in the choir, was a deaconess. But my mother was all on the Council of Negro Women. And she was on the uh, council of my nursery school, St. Albans Day Nursery. So my parents were uh, active in the community in leadership roles, and they tried to instill those things into my brother, my sister, and I. But uh, again, the, the, the spiritual side of, of my upbringing was, was very, very important. And uh, I think it remains uh, very important to me to this day because I think a good spiritual foundation allows us and, and actually aids us in, uh, in achieving and attaining and, and I don't mean attaining physical things, I mean getting, uh, acquiring, buying stuff. I mean attaining in terms of the way we live and the way we fit into the, into the community and the way we are 
of service to others as we achieve things for ourselves. So let me stop there. We can go back and forth. No, I, I, I think that having this glimpse into uh, or glimpse behind the curtain, let's say, uh, is really informative. And at the end of the day, uh, some of the tips that you just shared are common to a lot of, if not all of, uh, the really illustrious guests that we've had on the broadcast when it comes to that work ethic and how it was instilled uh, and the approach that was taken not only growing up but on into life when it comes to tackling opportunities as well as issues and problems. And so uh, the influence of the church, the influence of your family, your parents in particular, seems clear. So let me ask you this. You mentioned uh, that you spent nearly three decades, 27 years, I think you said, in service to our country. Thank you for your service, by the way. Thank you. But you have kind of failed at retirement um, <laughs> in that you, um, you're you still busy. Uh, and uh, we, we certainly will talk about uh, your role as a, a professor uh, in a number of areas, but what motivates you every day? I mean, uh, you might say that traveling to space, uh, you, you made your claim to fame, but you continue. Where's the motivation coming from? Well, I, I think the motivation is to do what my father taught us to do, and, to, and that's to always strive to improve, always strive to learn more to expand oneself, to learn new things, to have new experiences, to, to grow and learn. And then when the opportunity comes, you share what you have with others and you want others to share with you. So I think no matter how old I get, I hope that I will always be looking for ways to grow and learn and improve myself and hopefully contribute something to, to my community. So I think that that motivation was instilled in me early on. Thank you. All righty, so I'm going to uh, jump into your career. And I got to tell you, like I said, as I was uh, reading through some of the information in preparation for our conversation, my breath was li literally taken away. Uh, and so I'm going to hopefully not have to reach for an oxygen tank or anything. <laughs> because it's, it's really an exciting, exciting um, life and career that you've had. So uh, you mentioned that you entered the Navy, um, and this was back in the early 70s, uh, and your focus was on avionics. And when it was all said and done, fast forward several years, and I think I recall some 7,000 hours of flight time that you had logged, and then you were actually selected for the astronaut program in 1992. So firstly, uh, when it comes to your career as an aviator um, on uh, closer to the ground, let's say, uh, what was it that, that got you into avionics? You mentioned that you were thinking uh, about the arts uh, and then somehow aeronautics became a love of yours. How did flying get on your radar? Yes, as a, a child growing up in, in segregated Miami, I was always interested in technology, in science, and, and, and uh, I was the kid that played with batteries and light bulbs, and I would open up my toys at Christmas to see how they worked. You know, I, I was always interested in science technology, but there was no guidance in those days. We could have programs in the community to expose us to engineering. I didn't know what engineering was. I, you know, I thought an engineer drove a train. So I, 
I thought when I went to college, I was under the impression that when one went to college, that person had to major in something they were already good at. So I was good at music. So I thought, okay, I need to major in music. But college, which is supposed to do, really broaden my horizons and open my eyes. And I was exposed to engineering. And I began taking math and science and engineering classes as an overload to my music classes. Uh, I was always a good math student, even in elementary school, I was accelerating math and in English. And uh, so I began to take mathematics classes and engineering classes in, in college. And again, I didn't have any guidance. I sort of, I, it's really a weird story, but, but I, I remember one night in the dormitory, we called them dorms back then, rather than residence halls like they do now. <laughs> glancing over my roommate's shoulder, I just happened to glance over his shoulder, and he would, my roommate was an engineering major. I saw what he was doing as his homework. He was doing circuit analysis. And I didn't understand everything that he was doing, but I knew that little thing was a resistor. I knew this little thing was a capacitor. That little thing was a battery. And something down inside me kind of clicked. And that just stayed with me. I couldn't, couldn't shake it. Something down and said, I'm supposed to be doing that. And it looked like everywhere I turned, something pointing towards engineering. So my, my roommate, the engineering major, doing something that I was supposed to be doing, made me wake up and say, I'm supposed to be doing engineering. And everywhere I turned, something jumped out at me that said engineering. And in those days in college, you didn't pay by the hour. You paid one fee per quarter. We were on the quarter system. And you took as many hours as you wanted. You may, some of you, may, the young guys may not know about that, but some of us remember those days. So uh, 18 hours was the maximum. My advisor would always allow me to take an overload. So every semester I was taking 21 hours because I was taking music theory and also taking analytic geometry, calculus, trigonometry, Boolean algebra, and so I was enjoying it. So that's kind of how it happened. Just by happenstance, I looked over my roommate's shoulder, something clicked inside and said, I'm supposed to be doing that. And I pursued it. I went after it. And that was the start of my movement over into the science and technology fields. When you think about that, um shift it it seems like it was uh it clearly was part of god's plan for you uh and so as you as you had continued down that path you come to the 1990s and you find yourself an astronaut and so so can you say a little bit about that experience there's a lot that i want to know about it, that experience but um I remember back in the spring when we had our first High Tech Sunday broadcast, I shared that I had been riveted by the launch of the SpaceX um, uh, vehicle that uh, went to space with the two astronauts. And I actually found myself very emotional uh, as I watched them uh, for several minutes uh, as they went into geosynchronous orbit or whatever. And I couldn't help but recall the Challenger disaster of 1986. And here you are in 1992. That had to be something that was still on people's minds. And so 
when the opportunity to go into space presented itself, what made you take the opportunity and run with it? Well, well, let me, I'll, I'll get to that. Let me back up just a little bit again. I talked about the, the, the click that, that started me to focus on, on engineering. There was a, another event that happened that I think was, was divine or, or ordained. I was walking across campus on, at FSU as an undergraduate, undergraduate music major. And I remember just feeling a restlessness and unease down inside. I, I, I felt that I was supposed to be doing something different than I was doing, but I didn't know what it was. And I could show you this very day, the spot on campus when something hit me again, the thought, just, just the impression, astronaut. Mm. Just the impression, nothing, no, both the lightning came out. And you know how you have two sides of your mind? One side uh, will say anything, or imagine anything. It might be pro athlete, might be FBI agent, might be Navy SEAL, might be scientist, might be a rock star, yeah. might be race car driver. But the other side, the logical side says, you can't do that. You're not going to be a rock star. You can't sing. Uh, you're not going to be a pro football player. You run the, take you five minutes to run 50 yards, you know. So the two sides, one side said astronaut, just the impression. And the other side said, you can't do that. You're a musician. You're going to be Quincy Jones. Uh, you're going to be Miles Davis. But the thought would not leave me alone. The thought of astronaut would just not leave me alone. I didn't say anything to anybody because it's just so far-fetched. But that was the seed that started me thinking about engineering because astronauts were engineers, military pilot because astronauts in those days were all military test pilots. So that's what led me to naval aviation, research development, testing evaluation, and ultimately the space program. So I do believe that uh, I was ordained to uh, have the career that I did. I think we all are. I believe that when we, uh, when we come here, we are put here with a specific purpose in mind. And many of us, unfortunately, don't ever find out what that purpose is. We're so busy following somebody else's dream. You know, in the minority community, everybody wants to be a rapper. Everybody wants to be an athlete. But some of these kids might be ordained to be a doctor, or to be a physicist, or to be a nurse, a teacher, or a minister, or whatever. But, but we, we have so many things thrown at us that we, they, don't, they never discover what it is they're supposed to do. I was very fortunate that I discovered what I'm supposed to do, and I was therefore successful at doing it. I believe it was ordained. I was put here for that purpose, and I'm just very grateful and very blessed. Now, back to the, the launch. Uh, I can remember where I was when the Challenger accident occurred. I was on active duty as a Navy pilot. I was a test pilot, as a matter of fact. And I, I remember that day very well. It was before my day in the space program, but I was active in, in the Navy when that occurred. Some years later, when I was getting ready to fly my first mission, it so happened that that flight took place at night, and it was a very cold night. And it was the coldest night launch since the Challenger accident. We didn't know that until the news brought it up. The news media interviewing us kept harping on how cold it was that night. But uh, long story short, is uh, I was excited about it. I wasn't worried or, or fearful that something was going to go wrong. If you 
are, are in fear or worry about what you're doing, you're probably in the wrong business. So I was excited. We've been training for years. I was ready to get the show on the road. Let's watch this thing in the, in the space and, uh, and get it going. I can tell you it's a life-changing experience. There's just nothing like it on earth. I'm so fortunate to have been able to do that and love sharing with others. So, so we're going we're gonna to impose on you to keep sharing. Uh, so it, it's not enough that you uh, were in the vehicle, but then you go to space <laughs> and you got out of it. Uh, and you and you walked in space. So so what what was that like? What's it like to do uh, spacewalks? I believe that that uh, you did three and and logged some nineteen hours uh, outside of the spacecraft. Yes, that's correct. There are no words to describe what it's like. First of all, to be in space and then to put the suit on and go outside. The, the words just don't describe it. it. I can talk about awesome and 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 talk about. Um, uh, amazing and none of those really give you the true sense of what it's like. Uh, also to be a spacewalking astronaut was very fortunate because that's the job that everybody wants to do. You know, not very many people, even of the total number of people who've flown in space, relatively few have actually walked in space and go outside of the vehicle. We call it walking, but of course from the shuttle, we weren't walking in place, you were floating. We still call it a space walk. So I was very fortunate to have been able to do that. And uh, in those days, during the shuttle days, three spacewalks was a lot and 19 hours outside was a lot. Space, space station, the people up there now staying four months, six months, of course, they, they beat those records. But in those days, that was a lot of spacewalking time. And uh, it was just uh, an, an amazing experience to be outside of the vehicle, inside the spacesuit, orbiting the Earth at 17,500 miles per hour and uh, watching the sun rise and set every 45 minutes and being able to manipulate that heavy suit, conduct all the work outside that we were supposed to do. Just incredible experience. My uh, first flight and first spacewalk, obviously I was the rookie spacewalker. On my second flight where we did two, I was the lead spacewalker and then my partner was the rookie. So I got a chance to, to direct the spacewalk activities on my second space flight outside of Columbia. And so when, you, when you're thinking about what you just spoke of, the work that you were having to do, so you're a, a mission specialist, you're out there, you're supposed to be making repairs or, or taking measurements or assessments. And so uh, you're, you're, you're floating in space and you're having to get work done. Is it, is it a reflex that your training and education just kind of kick in uh, or is there a, a checklist that you're following? How, how is it that you are able to actually focus on work while you're floating in space? Yes, actually it's, it's training. It's training and the training comes from, it's a culmination of everything you've done all the years of your professional life. That's why astronauts all come from either the military for pilots or come from the scientific community because everything you do builds on everything else. So as an astronaut, what I was doing in space built on all of my years as a naval aviator, as an, an engineering engineering degree, as research development, testing, evaluation, pilot, as, as a leader. Remember, I was a lead, I was a lead spacewalker. So the leadership uh, skills come into play. All of that come into play. And it's very, very systematic. Uh, you don't necessarily want to do things reflexively. You don't want to do spur of the moment stuff. That'll get you killed. 
So mm-hmm. you want you training as best you can for every uh, every activity, but you you have to be able to handle the unexpected. And my naval aviation experience prepared me, I think, is, is uh, somewhat to be able to handle things that were unexpected. And we did have some unexpected things going on also. But it's a culmination of, of all of the things that I talked about and, uh, and, and more. It's not uh, an easy thing. It's not, for, it's not for everybody. Everybody is called to do certain things. And uh, so it's just, <laughs> I'm at a loss words again to, to adequately describe it all. I, I can only imagine that the word may not have been invented yet. Uh, but uh, let, me, let me ask uh, just a, a few more questions uh, about the experience and its impact on you. So I fly regularly to Africa on missions trips. And uh, every now and then uh, the pilots have the planes at, you know, they, I think the highest I've been is, is 40,000 feet. Compared to you being in space, I haven't left the ground yet. <laughs> um, uh, and, but I marvel even on a plane, and it, it just gives me such a sense of the awesomeness of God and his creation. How, how did being in space impact you from a spiritual perspective? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I don't think you can experience something like flying in space and not have it affect you in and the right effect, I think, for me is spiritual. Uh, when you look out at the earth from space, you can see how small it is. It's finite. You know, the earth from the ground or even seen from an airplane looks almost infinite because you can't see past the earth. You can see to the horizon. Right. You can't see past it. When you're in space, not only do you see the horizon, but you can see out past the earth. You see all that other stuff out there. You see other planets. You see the moon. You see the sun as you're going around. So you realize just how small and how finite the Earth is. You also see how bright and colorful and beautiful it is. You've never seen brightness and color until you've seen the Earth from space. And and everybody says, I'll ask when I say this, but I'll say it again, too. It's incredible how peaceful the Earth looks. It looks so quiet and peaceful and inviting from up there. If I were an alien approaching the earth, I, I would be happy looking forward to landing there as opposed to the turmoil we see when we turn the news on every afternoon down here. So from a spiritual standpoint, I think it gives a person an appreciation for the earth as our home and, and how important it is for us to take care of the earth and how you somehow wish we didn't have all of the turmoil and arguing and fussing and fighting that we have going on down here and all of the, the just the, the mean spiritedness from, and from a lot of different places, not one particular group of people, just in general uh, and the, the despair and, and the, you just wish we could, could have that, the peace that, I saw from space that would that would exist all over the earth. So that's the kind of thing it it uh, and also it gives you a, a different perspective. And quite often, I find myself reminding myself of how I view the earth from up there, and therefore this little nitpicky thing over here that's about to annoy me 
it's not important. You know, that little thing that somebody did or said, that's not important. You know, what's important is, is other uh, other things so much more important than that. So it gives you a perspective of life and of earth that I did not have before. That is such a provocative contrast, and I, uh, I really appreciate you drawing up on that. And you wouldn't be able to had you not had the vantage point that you've had uh, from space. When you think about going from being a rookie walker to the lead walker uh, for your, your space uh, walks, uh, and, and just being uh, on a, uh, an astronaut team, period, uh, what would you say uh, is the top of mind lesson, uh, especially leadership lesson that you've taken uh, from those experiences? 24 days, I think, in space. Yes. Yes. Um, what, what lessons uh, have stayed with you? One of the things that resonates with me most is the fact that we, uh, human beings of different nationalities and races and sexes, you know, we, we have more in common than we are different. You know, and it's sad that, that, we have, uh, that we have so many situations pushing differences on us in everyday life. We read the paper, watch the news, talk about, we have, uh, it's like they're promoting the differences and how, and how we should be angry or upset with each other because of our differences. You know, somebody's not treating you right because of this. Or you can't do that because of that. But when you work in space, and all of my, my crews were international crews, you know, it really drives the point home that we are more alike than we are different. We, in fact, we have very, very few. We as a, a people on Earth have very, very few differences. We all want the same thing, have the same values. And when you get past all the superficial stuff, you know, we, we, we are all one, one people and we can learn to live and work together and respect each other. Uh, so that was one, one thing that really uh, stuck with me. That was really driven home to me. Uh, the other thing, again, is that uh, NASA does a pretty good job of looking past people's color and background and things like, like that. Uh, uh, because again, I was assigned, uh, I was a flight engineer for the flying parts so because I'm a pilot by background. I was part of the flight deck crew. So I actually flew the vehicle, but I was a spacewalker. And, and again, very few people got to do that, but I was assigned to, a space, uh, to do spacewalks and, and the lead spacewalker on my second flight. And we did some things that were kind of unusual on both those missions. In fact, the first flight, I tested improvements to the spacesuit itself. We were preparing to build the International Space Station. It was going to be located in an area of space that's colder than we had traditionally gone. So they modified the suit to handle the cold temperatures. And one of my assignments was to test the modifications of the suit itself. Well, that was, that was, that was the most important part of one of the spacewalks. You know, and they gave it to me. I could give it to somebody else, but I don't think they looked at it. What color somebody was? They said, "Okay, who best fits the uh, of, of the team that's going to go outside? Who best fits the profile to do that?" I was a test pilot by background, so put the suit on. Let him test the suit. And on the second flight, we had uh, an emergency happen, and we had to manually capture a satellite, a three thousand pound satellite. My buddy and I caught the satellite. Well, 
because I was a lead spacewalker and NASA said, you know, this is risky. We'll really leave the final decision up to you to do it. But actually, I said, no, we're going to do this. I had to sit with my partner. Now I had to rehearse with him and practice with him and lead him and guide him through so that we could go outside to catch the satellite. So this young fellow was on his first space flight, first space walk. English was his second language. And there's only two of us out there. And I'm responsible. I'm in charge. But the leadership skills that I developed from the time I was a kid in Macedonia Sunday school to the time I was a Navy captain, you know, all those years of leadership experience and skill came through. And, uh, and then just, just having the blessings of, of, uh, of the, the Lord guiding us along, we caught that thing. We got the job done, brought that satellite back. So all of those, those lessons uh, uh, resonate with me on, on a daily basis. How I've been prepared and, and, and fortunate and selected and, and, and uh, supported by many people along the way. And uh, all those things, all those things come together and, and they resonate with me even at this point in my life. That's amazing. And I appreciate you sharing that account with the satellite. It is absolutely uh, instructive for you to say that in space, they're not looking at what you look like. Uh, they're actually interested in what you, uh, what they know you can do. Uh, so back here on the ground, my last question for this segment. Um, we are all excited about the annual Black Engineer of the Year Award Stars and Stripes event. And it's a, a military tribute, as you know, the theme for which uh, in 2021 is answering the call yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it really is a recognition of the contribution of Blacks in the military and how we as a community have always been there to answer the call of duty throughout the history of our country. So when you think about those who came before you, how important were their contributions to you? And equally importantly, what would you say are your thoughts on the future of space exploration and the roles that Blacks can contribute to? Well, well absolutely. The uh, contributions of all of the African-Americans in the, not just in the military itself, but in science, technology, engineering, math, who went before me are tremendously important. They're important to me because they're inspirational and instructional, and they have inspired and continue to inspire me to move forward and to encourage others to, to move forward. But they're important also because they form a basis of us, of African-Americans, as being contributors to America and how great America is. And in spite of all, all the issues we have, I think we're the greatest country in the world. You know, this, I wouldn't want to live anyplace else. But America is great because of, of contributions of many people, including African-Americans. If you want to talk about science and technology, engineering, you know, we, we've got Granville T. Wood, we've got Elijah McCoy, we've got, the list goes on and on and on. And if we were talking about military, we've got, of course, the Tuskegee Airmen. You know, they come to my mind being a pilot by background. And then and just thousands of, of other uh, African-American men and women who serve this country and help make the, make the country what what it is. So all those things are very, very important. It's important that we pass these lessons along to young African-Americans so that they will feel the pride and feel the inspiration that will allow them to pick up that torch and move us forward in, into the future. You know, the military is a, uh, 
as a very important entity. It's, it's kind of an unfortunate entity, just like the police department. You know, we wish we lived in a world where you don't have to have a police department, but we do have to have one. We wish we had lived in a world where you don't have to have a military, but we do have to have a military. It's always been that way, and it, it all will probably always be that way. We need one. And um, it, it's important that African-Americans continue to do their part to support something that is so important. We have to have the safety and security. So very uh, inspirational to me and uh, certainly uh, should be very inspirational to young African-Americans coming up. And we have to do what we can to, to, uh, to, to educate them and to inspire them. And I know I'm going on and on here, but in terms of the future of space exploration, I think the future of space exploration is bright. It's, uh, it's necessary. We have to continue to push forward. Uh, my reservation and hesitation is that space has become so political over the years. You know, with each administration, we seem to get a change in direction. But having said that, I think ex uh, expanding our presence in space is inevitable. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So sooner or later, we're going to branch out in space and we're going to continue to, to move forward. Uh, you may, you, you probably know this, but one of the astronauts who launched on the last SpaceX flight was Victor Glover. You know, Victor's African-American naval aviator. And I know, I know Victor, he's, he's my son's age. My son is an active duty naval aviator right now. The two of them went through training together. So I know Victor and uh, he's on the station right now, uh, Navy pilot. And also NASA just named the first group of 18 Artemis astronauts. And those are the astronauts who will be part of the moon program when we, when we return to the moon. Two of those, no, three are African-American, uh, two women and then Victor Glover, who's up there now. So we see African-Americans continue to branch out in military, continue to branch out in science, technology, and engineering, and mathematics. And it's important that, that we do that. So let me stop there and see if we can, if you, that's, a, a good answer for you. That was a perfect answer. <laughs> and, and so I've got to collect myself, Captain. I'm going to calm it down. Uh, and while I do that, I am going to hand things over to uh, my co-host, Lango Dean, and uh, she's going to take us into the next segment. Hey, Lango, how are you? I'm very well, Dr. Vaughn. How about you? I am doing great. This has been an awesome conversation. It has been. And, you know, before we move on, um, into the second segment with Captain Scott. I just want to say we started off, what, six months ago? 2020 has been a challenging year, we all know. But I think what we found with many of the guests we've had on the show is that they have shown us and the young people that the uncertainties in life and the unpredictable never go away. So as we start a new year, I hope we go on helping young people see the lessons that they're going to need going forward and how they can begin to trust the uncertainty of tomorrow because it's always going to be uncertain how yeah. they're going to be able to trust the uncertainty uncertainty of tomorrow in the next day next days the weeks ahead how they're going to be able to do that you're listening to high tech sunday featuring dr mark vaughn lango dean and our special guest, retired U.S. Navy captain and aviator, Winston Scott. This week's episode is brought to you by the Bayes STEM Conference. Now, 
a word from our sponsor. becomes clear. The opportunities ahead, the visions, and the dreams. I will be the last to fall. The hope of what's in reach. Imagine the possibilities. It's the essence of science, of technology, world of careers unleashed. Everything you need to bring out the best in your career, you can get at Bea. Bea, becoming everything you are. Again, this week's episode is brought to you by the Bea STEM Conference. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the show, Captain Scott. True story. I was talking to a young um, adopted grandson of mine over the holidays, and I said, we'd probably be having Captain Scott on the show. And he said, oh, you mean Captain Scott, beam me up, Scotty? And I said, no, no, they're, they're 240 million years apart. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, so um, to, to the first question, Captain Scott, you talked about how you came to engineering, that you didn't have any guidance. Um, you just took on math and engineering sort of as, as an overload. but. It's how you got into engineering is, in your words, by happenstance that kind of fascinated me. I think you were looking over the shoulder of your roommate in your dorm room and you happened to see things that you recognize and, and that kind of drew you to engineering. I just wondered what it, what it was that you saw exactly in that book and how you made those connections. I think it was not so much what I saw as is, is what I saw triggered something that was already inside of me. See, the love for technology and science was already there. The aptitude for technology and science was already there. But it was dormant. It's like a, a seed, I guess, that had not been watered or not had been exposed to the light. And when I glanced over at what my roommate was doing, it, it sort of a, a, a drop, a, put a drop of water and, and some sunlight on that seed, and, and the seed began to grow. It was already down inside of me. And uh, I, I believe, it's my belief that when God puts us here, he, he puts seeds already down inside of us. And there's seeds for talents, you know, and, this, and somebody may have a seed for math, somebody may have a seed for music, for, for medicine, for uh, teaching, or whatever, or more than one seed, and we call those talents. I think those seeds are already inside of us. And uh, what you have inside of you may be different from what I have inside of me. You know, mine was science and engineering, yours may be 
maybe some, something else. And uh, it, something needs to cause those seeds to germinate. Well, mine sort of germinated by happenstance, and that's not good. We need formal programs that expose young people uh, to various uh, fields so that we can germinate whatever it is they're put here to do. And that's where the formal programs uh, like you doing here, uh, High Tech Sunday, you know, the, somebody may hear that and something will click inside of them and, 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 and their seed will begin, begin to germinate. So I, I, I think that's how it happened with me. And uh, again, that's, that's not a good way to do it. We gotta have a focused approach that we can bring larger numbers of young people in, into all kinds of fields, you know, STEM fields, but then other fields also. I like that. I like the way you dovetailed into the, 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 the pointed issue that it's not enough that you came to engineering, but also that it's important that you have more structured programs for young people out there, for many young people who may not have been lucky as you, because um, it, it probably was ordained for you to have the career, but um, and we all have a purpose when we come here, as you said, and you were fortunate in discovering um, your, your talents and your gifts, but it's important that we reach more people who may not be as fortunate. So Absolutely. I'm glad you, you made mention of that. Um, you, you talked about um, the Artemis program and the African-Americans that are now in the, in the program, but I'd like to, for you to tell us how, what the selection process is all about, how people become astronauts, and um, now, and when you became an astronaut back then, how, how did it start? How does it work? Well, the selection process is fairly straightforward. When NASA is ready to select a new group of astronauts, and NASA is just like any other employer, every so many years, there's uh, attrition, right? You know, people retire or they leave, resign or whatever, and they need to replenish the crop. NASA will send out an advertisement advertising for people to apply for astronauts. And they'll advertise all over the place these days. In my day, when I applied, it was mostly print media, but nowadays we have social media. So they can advertise all over the place. And the idea is to get as many people to apply as possible. So then you get thousands of people apply. They publish the criteria and of the thousands of people that apply, NASA will over a two year or so period, weed that down and maybe select nine or 10. Uh, military people, of course, have to apply through the military service. You have to get past your service first before your name is ever sent down to NASA. So being a Navy, a Navy officer, Naval aviator, I had to apply to the Navy first, get past the Navy board. Then the Navy people were sent along with the Air Force and Army and Marines, uh, all down to NASA along with the civilians. And then NASA, again, over a two-year period, whittled it down. Uh, when my group applied, again, this was the days when you had to write a, a uh, you had to do a written uh, package, application package, you know, hard copy. is before in internet applications. You had to write up a hard copy, get all of your endorsements, they review your record and so on. We had about 3,000 people apply and they selected 19. Nowadays, with everything online, they might get 18,000 people apply and then they might select 18 or 19 or something like that. So it's a fairly competitive uh, program, but uh, it's, it's, it's certainly worth it. And I would do everything I can to encourage a lot of uh, African-Americans to apply. 
and not just to be astronauts. As you know, the space program is made up of thousands of people of all disciplines. Astronauts are just one part of astronauts get all the, all the publicity because the astronauts fly in space. But you've got all the scientists and engineers and technicians, you've got security people, dietitians, you've got public relations people, you've got educators, you have chemists, you've got medical doctors, you've got, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of people who make the space program successful. So I'd like to see more minorities apply uh, to all of those positions throughout the space program. That's wonderful. So the space industry is huge and there are people doing all kinds of things. There are all kinds of careers. It's not just astronauts. There are all kinds of, as you, as you described yourself, there are all kinds of jobs Absolutely. within the space industry. Um, so as we look to returning um, astronauts to the moon in 2024, uh, which is just three years away, uh, 2024 sounds like, you know, like years away, but it's not really. It's just a couple of years away. A couple of years away. What should students now in school, in high school, focus on now if they they want to one day go into space or work for the space program on Earth? What should they focus on now? Well, certainly students who are at this stage of, of the game of the space program, those who want to work in that field should study science and technology related fields, you know, physics, mathematics, engineering and so on. Those are the fields that they should study. And uh, students who are in high school now can probably not expect to, if they want to fly in space, it'll be 20, 25 years before they're ready to even be considered. The average age of selection for astronauts is late 30s, you know, 40-ish. If you look at the people that are up there now, they're probably all in the 50, all 50 late 40s, 50-something years old. So by the time you get the experience NASA wants and the education they want, you know, it, it takes a little while. So those who are in high school now, again, should study technical fields with advanced degrees, at least a master's degree, preferably a PhD in some fields. Uh, engineers, pilots certainly will probably continue to come from the military for a while because the most extensive flight training you're going to get anywhere is in the u.s military you know military operates the most sophisticated airplanes that we have and military test pilots are the ones that that uh, have experience in those airplanes so uh, military career will, will help a lot military also prepares you in other other ways so again i would encourage uh, students to look at stem related fields minimum bachelor's degree you want a master's degree and preferably a phd and some experience to go along with it that's wonderful. Um, you are an educator at Florida Tech, um, and you, you talk, of course, you talk to students all the time. Um, and uh, these are students who, um, as our 2021 Black Engineers said a couple of weeks ago, who have already leaned in to education. Um, they understand that there's some things in life that, that are just harder. You've got to, you know, math is hard, you know, physics is hard. So, so they've just, they leaned in, leaned into those thoughts. But what else do you tell your students at, at Florida Tech? What else, what other kinds of advice do you give to your students? First of all, uh, you're, you're right. The students that come to Florida Tech are already very focused students. You know, they, they are already focused typically on engineering, science, and math, and, and business, we have business and psychology and so on. So. But uh, in general, I try and tell students that uh, even though things may seem to be hard, 
uh, if you enjoy it, then it's not hard. And another thing I try to tell them that if something is easy, it's probably not worth doing. That's what my parents used to tell me. They say, if it's easy, it's probably not worth doing. Everybody's doing it. You know, finding something challenging to go do so that you make yourself stand out. And I encourage students also to be well-rounded. You know, uh, NASA does not want um, single-minded well, people. NASA likes well-rounded people. You know, I'm a, I'm a pilot. I have an engineering education, but I'm a musician, as, as you know. And a lot of astronauts are that way. There are a lot of astronauts who are musicians. A lot of astronauts who, uh, well, I can name Mae Jemison was a dancer. She liked to dance. Uh, uh, we had one astronaut who liked to bake. You know, she baked cakes all the time. That was her hobby. We have astronauts who are painters. Nicole Stott is a, is a painter. Alan Bean was a very accomplished professional painter. Alan Bean walked on the moon. So astronauts typically are well-rounded people. You don't, you don't hear about all these other things that they do. But um, and I, so I encourage students that no matter what field you intend to go into, whether it's astronaut or science or engineering or technology or whatever, try and be well-rounded. Uh, uh, expose yourself to other fields. In fact, I encourage freshmen, because I, I talk to the freshman orientation classes, I encourage them to to find a, a couple of classes totally outside of your intended major, something so foreign that you never would think about, and then go take that class and see how you like it. Learn something new, learn something different. I try and encourage students also to broaden their scope of friends. We naturally want to gravitate towards people who are just like we are. You know, if I'm a new freshman in college, I'm new on campus, I naturally will gravitate towards other students who are just like me. Well, somewhere along the line, make yourself go gravitate towards students who are not like you. Join an organization, find a club, meet some friends who are totally different from you are. You know, if you, you know, I'm a kid from the hood, so to speak, in Miami, where I flew in space with astronaut from Japan, astronaut from India, astronaut from, and I, I met astronauts from China. China calls them Tychonauts, and I know the Russian. Uh, so I think it's very important that our students uh, broaden themselves, be well-rounded, and, uh, and experience many, many, many different uh, things in life. Life is too short to spend it all just doing one little thing with this narrow little group of people over here. Never do I venture out of that group. So those are things I try and encourage young people to do. Thank you. Uh, sticking with young people, I know that at some point in your career, you co-founded an organization that helped young men. And um, I'm fortunate to be exposed to an organization that also helps young men in an urban environment. And a couple of things they, they, they have to, to struck to deal with is something that you talked about, the, the mean spiritedness that kind of is pervasive in our society today and the despair that comes along with it for a lot of them, yeah? So what would you say to um, young people, to young men and women about ha ha having a mentor, finding a good mentor? Because it's not always easy to find a good mentor. So where do you go to do that? Well, I, I, again, it, it's, it's easier said than done, but I do encourage young people to try and identify mentors. But mentors, uh, good mentors are located every place. You no know, church, it's one place. 
If they attend church services on Sunday, quite often they're men uh, for, for, for young men or women for young women and vice versa. And the church, that could be that could be a mentor to a person. School is another place. You know, they should take school seriously and find a teacher or a counselor or whatever that might be willing to mentor them uh, at school. So mentors are available, but we have to avail ourselves of them. And that's one of the things that I try and encourage young people. I, I see too much of what I what I think is uh, black folks walking around with a chip on our shoulder. You know, we, we all know that racism still exists. You know, we have not completely eliminated racism, but we hurt ourselves when we walk around with a chip on our shoulder and we walk, we, we isolate ourselves. Because I think most people in the world and most people in this country are very fair and open-minded, down-earth people, and they treat you the way you treat them. If you approach them and you're open and honest and friendly, they're going to return friendship. If I approach them with a, don't you mess with me, you know, I'll knock you out. Then how do you think they're going to respond to us? So I, I see a lot of, of us walking around with, with chips on our shoulder. And what we do is we, we hurt ourselves. So I think that what we, we all, all people, but African-Americans too, we need to be sure we get rid of any anger and hatred that we have in our hearts. That's step number one before we try and eliminate anger and hatred in somebody else's. You know, it's the whole thing about the speck in your uh, and the log in some the speck in somebody else's eye. You have a log in your own eye. Yeah, we need to to take that to heart. So th th those are some of the things that I encourage young young people to do. It, it's really disheartening to me when I hear really, really young people talk about uh, talk about systemic racism and how we're not allowed to do this and we're not allowed to do that. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't buy that. You know, racism exists, but systemic racism is gone. There are opportunities that we have to take advantage of them and not. Blame some, not blame everything on everybody else, and and carry around chips on our shoulder and being angry all the time. So I'm not sure what if I opened up a can of worms with that, but we can certainly talk about it some more. Well, thank you so much for beaming us up, Captain Scott. <laughs> um, at this point, I'm going to turn it back to Dr. Vaughn. Thank you again, Captain Scott. Dr. Vaughn, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lango. And again, Captain, it's just been amazing to have the opportunity to speak with you and we're we're getting just about to time here uh and there's so much more that i would uh, love to hear from you about uh we we uh understand by reading your background that you are a martial artist um i wanted to explore uh your music uh, because you are a professor in both the music and in the uh science areas at florida tech uh but um I think that um, I also want to ask a little bit more about uh, space. Uh, so really quickly, uh, can you tell us, uh, like with the martial arts, what, what is that all about? How, how is that informing uh, your uh, space these days? Well, it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't train formally much anymore. When I was on active duty, I did. I was religious about it. I trained probably five or six days a week and uh, do a couple of tournaments a year. 
And uh, it was all a part of broadening my horizons and improving myself. I think that everything we learn feeds into everything else. Everything is linked together and it makes us who we are. Uh, I think that uh, the academic uh, study is important, but the spiritual side of life is very important also. The physical part of life is very important, being, being healthy and happy and, and developing a good spiritual, a good uh, physical life. And martial arts incorporates the spiritual as well as the physical. So everything ties together. I got into martial arts as part of my training in the Navy, and then I just kept at it. So I trained for a lot of years and enjoyed it uh, very much. It becomes a, a part of who you are. And so that's, uh, that's kind of what, what that's all about. That's a great connection that you just made, and I'm glad we got a chance to get that one in. Um, so as we wrap up, uh, we're talking again about a career and experience uh, that has from, from your time in the Navy as an astronaut and even an author. Uh, we didn't talk about your book. Um, uh, and now as a, a collegiate, uh, we're, we're talking uh, 40, 50 years of influence. What would you want the audience to hear from you as a final thought before we end? The, the final thought I would say to the audience is that uh, if, you, if you read my bio, it sounds really, really good, and, and I've been blessed to do all these things, but I, like the audience, I'm saying, I am no different from anybody else in the audience, that they can accomplish anything they want to accomplish if they want to do it. I would say that it's the, it's the old uh, advice that uh, you, you, opportunity meets preparation. If, if, some, if you know what you want to do and you prepare for it, the opportunity will come to you. You want to be prepared, when it, to prepare for it when it comes, and you want to recognize it when it comes, and you want to have the guts to go get it, to take advantage of that opportunity and don't hold back. So those are the things that I would say uh, to, the, to the youngsters in the audience, our young, young, youngsters and old people. No, no a bolt of lightning came down from the sky and struck me. You know, I didn't have, uh, I didn't come from the planet Krypton or a rocket ship or anything. I'm just an average, everyday person, the same as they are. And, and they can accomplish uh, great things in life. Everybody is capable of accomplishing great things in life if they uh, approach the, the things that they are put here to do and they persevere don't give up and so that that's the message i like to i would like to leave with people so. well thank you so much uh, uh captain winston scott on behalf of myself uh, my co-host lango dean everybody here at high tech sunday thank you so much for spending time with us today i'm telling you what i thought that all the christmas presents had been opened but you <laughs> have been a gift to us today so thank you very much it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me and and congratulations on what you do with high tech sunday i know that somebody when they listen to all all of your broadcasts you touch somebody can make a difference in their lives. And I think that's what it's all about. I'm very happy to play a small part in it and wish you all a happy and a prosperous new year. Thank you. Happy new year to you as well. With that, I'm going to hand it back off to Brandon Newby, who's going to take us out. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communications Group's High Tech Sunday 
looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students, and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcasts will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join us next time.